0: Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations. Their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features a fireside chat with Dr. Anton Sadawi, past Chair of the ACS Board of Regents and current Louis B. Saltz Chair and Professor of Surgery at George Washington University Medical Center in Washington, D.C. Dr. Sadawi reflects on his career as a vascular surgeon, researcher, teacher, and leader. The program host is Dr. Mohsen Chabahan for the ACS Academy of Master Surgeon Educators. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program.
1: Well, it's my absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Sadawi tonight. Um, Dr. Sadawi is the is professor uh, and the Lewis Saltz Chair um, for the Department of Surgery at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Um, this is especially um, important to me because Dr. Sadawi was one of my attendings when I was a resident at Georgetown. Um, we were both a lot younger. Uh, Dr. Sadawi was uh, in the early parts of his career at that time, and I was a resident at the VA hospital. So, Tony, it, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for agreeing to uh, this session tonight.
2: Thank you. Uh, thank you uh, so much, uh, Dr. Shabahang and Dr. Sachdeva. You know, this is what's fair about age. Uh, we both were younger, but I was still older than you. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's very true. Thank you. Thank you so much for this honor. And uh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to chat with you uh, this evening.
1: Absolutely, and you know, I over the next uh, now hour or so, or 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 for fifty-five minutes, we're going to kind of go through the whole uh, sequence of your uh, of your career with an eye towards what our um, viewers tonight and in the future can learn from your experiences. So I'll just start with um, uh, your journey, um, as uh, many may know, and if they don't, you were born in Damascus. Syria and um, moved to the to the United States and just um wanted to ask what how that how that transition occurred what brought you to the United States what was it like to go through that
2: journey well thank you so much um uh, you know uh, uh, it's it really what what happened is uh, uh, I wanted to to be a doctor since I was in high school and that's related to influence on my father who really wanted to be a doctor, but he couldn't. Uh, he couldn't because his father died uh, very early in his life and and he had to actually take care of the family. So uh couldn't become a doctor. So his, his goal in life was, is to get one of his kids to be a doctor. And I was the eldest, so he focused completely on me. So there was a lot of pressure there. Uh, But, um, uh, and actually uh, I really liked uh, the fact uh, of being not only a doctor, but a surgeon. Uh, Even when I was in high school, I was uh, very much impressed. Uh, with two giants of surgery around the world. One is Christian Barner, who did the first heart transplant uh, in South Africa. And one is Dr. Michael DeBakey. And uh, I used to get the Time magazine, even back home, and there was an article about Dr. DeBakey fixing an aneurysm. So I said, wow, here's this lethal disease if the aneurysm ruptures. And here's someone in the United States who actually... Uh, can fix it. And the patient lives a normal life. So not only I wanted to become a doctor, not only I wanted to become a surgeon, and actually, when I came to the United States, I wanted to be either a cardiac surgeon or a vascular surgeon. So obviously, here I am, I'm a vascular surgeon. Now, why the United States? uh, Your question is, because um, all over the world, uh, those doctors and surgeons that are trained in the United States of America were so much more, so much better and so much more down to earth and so much more skilled uh, than uh, doctors trained anywhere else in the world. In addition to that, I had really a large family um, in uh, in New York, in, in Brooklyn, and I thought Well, and also I spoke the language, Uh, went to a a parochial school and um, where we learned in addition to the native language Arabic, we learned actually French and English. So uh, to me, it was so much easier to come to the United States because I spoke the language at the time. So this is how it happened where I came to the United States. And that was obviously a, a huge, a huge uh, uh, point in the direction of my uh, professional career uh, coming to the United States. And obviously, we're going to talk about more stuff that happened. Of course, and so we'll
1: in, in two anecdotes that if from our prep session and so on uh, that, that I just uh, would t- kind of I found touching was your father's influence on learning languages and, and the, the concept of Gaitan being one of the first books that you have had obtained in Syria.
2: Yeah, my father spoke the three languages. Uh, spoke Arabic, the native language. He spoke also um, English and French. And that's because he went to the American University of Beirut for college. And uh, there obviously he he learned uh, English and also on his own, he learned French. And he felt that um, speaking languages is extremely important. So he really uh, um, wanted his kids to speak uh, all three languages, the ones that that he speaks. So it was an interesting story there. Um, After we came back from school at night every day, He will sit with us and uh, he sees what homework we have, especially in the languages. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then next day in the morning, he will walk with us to school. And as we are getting to school, we have to repeat everything that we learned the night before by heart on the way to school. And actually at the time, it was pretty frustrating being kids. Of course. But uh when i was coming to the united states i felt how how influential and instrumental was that and what he did with us as we were growing up that's
1: a great story that's a great story so when we talked about different um points in life which were of major significance uh, I know you've talked about your fellowship at Boston University very fondly and that 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 seemed to have been a major um, uh, um turning point a, a fork in the road. Can you tell us more about that?
2: yeah actually uh yeah actually <laughs> there's a funny story about that so let me tell you that very quickly uh this is at the time where there were no matching programs. So you apply to a lot of program, you go and interview in all these program and then they call you and one of them will call you and offer you a job, right? So I had many interviews lined up and the first one was in Boston University. And um, and actually I uh, went there for the interview and met uh, the two folks there, Dr. Frank Legerfo and Jim Manzoyan and the other faculty over there, and really liked that place. They were extremely interested in education. They're down-to-earth people. I felt so comfortable there. So I decided every time I go to an interview, when I come back, I write about that interview and uh, what's the positive and the negative. And at the end, I write the summation, uh, whether I wanted to be there or not. And I actually wrote in the bottom I love this program. If they take me, I will go there, right? And some 24 hours, 48 hours later, I get a pager. There was no cell phones at the time. I got on a pager, that I have an outside call. So I went, found the phone, and got the outside call. And here's Dr. the for talking with me. And he says, well, uh, Tony, how did you feel about the interview? And I said, I felt great, actually. And he said, well, we want to offer you the job. And I said... Uh, I'll take it. And he said, don't you want to think about it? Talk with your wife? I said, no, I have this little sheet of paper in the bottom I wrote. If they offer me the job, I will take it. So you're offering me the job, I'll take it. But you have to find uh, a, uh, a fellowship for my wife. Uh, obviously my wife uh, is in pathology and, uh, uh, and he said, that's no problem. And actually in the Mallory Institute of Pathology, he arranged for her a fellowship in hematopathology. So she, okay. uh, we went together and that's where, and, and, that, and that fellowship uh, basically turned me towards uh, the academic track. Because when my wife and I came to the United States, all what we wanted is to be a good surgeon and a good pathologist right i mean she nope. always wanted to be a pathologist but so i i wanted to be a vascular surgeon i'll do vas and then come back and just practice vascular surgery however though when i went to that fellowship i i actually loved uh the academic way of doing things i love teaching i love doing research and uh, and uh, that's what changed my direction the whole direction in my career into academic uh,
1: surgery. So clearly it was the right choice and what you scribbled on that piece of paper ended up being the correct thing. When you came back to Washington, and we're going a little bit chronologically, but when you came back to DC, um, you were in a busy practice at the Washington Hospital Center. Um, in what, what start what uh, created the change to the VA system where you spent another 20 something years?
2: well uh that was that's also another interesting story, and also another extremely important um milestone in my academic and in, in my professional career. Uh, so I went to the Washington hostel Center is the largest at the time and still uh, the largest hostel in washington d c it has it, it's, it's been in the education business for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping uh, to be, actually, to be able to uh, launch an academic career from there. Uh, It didn't work out. What I was doing, though, during those couple of years is I went across the street to the VA hostel and met, at the time, the chief of surgery over there, John Harmon. And I went to John Harmon and I said, look, I would like to come and operate here for free. And he said... Why do you want to do that? And I said, well, I feel like I got a lot uh, in this country, in in America, and I want to give back. And what's better to give back than um, taking care, come here and taking care of the veterans? So for about a 15 month, every Tuesday, I was going to the VA and They will schedule cases for me. I'll go there Monday evening, see all the patients, look at all the x-ray. And on Tuesday, I will go and operate whatever they put for me, carotid, lower extremity bypass, aneurysm, whatever it is. And um, actually, I didn't do it for that reason, but that became beneficial because one day, John Harmon came to me and said, look, our chief of vascular surgery decided to leave. And since you've been here with us, operating, working with the residents, and you didn't ask for anything uh, in return, so I'm gonna give you something in return. I'm gonna ask you whether do you wanna come here and be the chief of vascular surgery before we advertise the position. And I thought about it and I said, wow, I mean, that's an answer to actually uh, my prayers in that I wanted to be an academic surgeon. And at the VA, actually, as you know, is it's a, it's a fertile ground for academics. And uh, at the time, John Harmon had a big lab doing a lot of research. And then he told me that also uh, Barbara Bass was coming uh, to be in general surgery. And I had known Barbara because she was a resident at GW uh, and, uh, and also, Barbara, coming to be academic, do research. And I thought, wow, I mean, I'll be able actually to learn quite a bit from these two people because they've done it. So I took that job. And just to tell you, I took a pay cut to go to take that job. I bet you did. I bet but, you... But, but I think that was so important in my professional life. In my professional career, because that's what led me to where I am today. Without being at the VA, uh, many things wouldn't have happened to me. And uh, I mean, something that you that things that you mentioned uh, uh, became president of uh, 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 three vascular societies and the chapter and the Washington Academy of Surgery and others. I uh, became the editor of the Journal of Vascular Surgery uh, from being there. i um, I becoming uh, uh, editor of the Rutherford book. All that stuff happened uh, because I was at the VA, because I built my academic career and started um, in the beginning. I had a lab, which we did basic science work, uh, collaborated with a uh, a gastroenterologist over there that was doing receptor mapping. So I did all that in the blood vessel, Luke Corman. And this is what led me where I am today. So uh, the VA career is really very important to young surgeon who want to be in academics.
1: And this is, you know, we wanted to, I wanted to make sure we emphasize the VA experience because you were there 20 something years. But can I focus on one thing you were going to the VA um, voluntarily and volunteering your time seeing patients on Monday nights. And we're in a world where much of the advice that's given to young surgeons is make sure you're you know, compensated for what you're doing. Make sure you RV use this. How do you reconcile that? Because that's really an important piece because you were just doing it. Um, and just how do you reconcile that? From that, what advice comes? Uh, do you have?
2: Well, I mean, look, the advice I have, actually, if you have a passion in life and if you have a good reason, you just take that opportunity. Eventually, it will pay off. And I am really was convinced that eventually you pay off. And I did it purely, purely because I wanted to give back. I really, and, and that's why I did it. And this is why I didn't go there to make extra money or anything. I would, and, and I have to say, I was given back in spades. I mean, my yeah. whole career um, basically revolved uh, about me being in the VA. And the way I started is by volunteering over there. So actually it worked great for me uh so my advice is follow your passion, follow your heart, do the right thing, eventually you're gonna do just fine. I mean surgeons do much better than the average population uh financially and everything else. So eventually we all gonna do fine, uh, but the stuff that the stuff that you cannot buy is, is your goal in life and being able to realize and that what i did at the va i was able to realize my goal in my professional career and that's to be an academic surgeon yes
1: and now i want to go to that uh, angle because as you said you have been the president of seven regional and national societies, Society for Vascular Surgery, Society for Clinical Vascular Surgery, editor of Rutherford the Textbook, editor of um, Journal of Vascular Surgery, have done a lot at the national and regional level. Can you tell me a little bit about that, the effect that it had on your life as you were doing it? Obviously a lot of time dedicated, and we'll get to the time that you've dedicated to the college, but thoughts about that and what effects did they have? And what um, what advice do you have
2: for people as they think about national um, presence? Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's very interesting in that, what I, which I've presented that before and I talked about actually, I tell young surgeons is that uh, you have to work hard locally. I mean, that's your base. Locally meaning your institution, you have to do well by your institution. Okay. And also start in your local organization. I started in the chapter of the American College of Surgeons, right? And I and I started there like everyone else as a young surgeon. And we put together the Young Surgeons Committee. And uh, uh, we were talking about that a couple of days ago, actually, with Kurt Newman, who was part of that. And and Kurt became the president of Children's Hospital uh, in here in Washington, DC. And uh, we talk about about that. So you gotta start locally and work hard locally, but start getting engaged. Shortly thereafter, you start getting engaged regionally, meaning you get engaged in the regional organization. Like for me, it was the Eastern Vascular Society, okay? Mm-hmm. And then as you're doing that, keep your eye, and plan nationally. You're not gonna get there. You gotta be very, very patient. It's gonna take a long, long time, right? But you, but you gotta have to be thinking about it right off the bat. And if you do that, and you put in the work, you will get there. So that's number one. Number two, how you move up in, in professional societies, is that offer to help. Offer to be on a committee, okay? Um, And then if you are given a task, accepted enthusiastically, okay? Do it well and do it on time within the deadline. And once you deliver that, ask if if you can do something else. But be careful and never overpromise so if you cannot finish something, don't take it on. And people respect that. So I was I'm working now on the 11th edition of Rutherford. And I called people either to write chapters or actually to be associate editor. And one person told me, you know, you know what, I would love to do it, but I'm just short on faculty and there's no way I could get it done. I have a great respect for that person. And next time I can offer something to that. If I have something to offer, I will offer that person because that tells me that that person will only take a task if they can get it done. And that's what you need. Now, you say, why? Well, because leaders in any organization or in any function, what they want, first, they want to do well by young people, but also, and more importantly, Okay, they want the business of the society or the unit to be taken care of. So if they ask you and to do a good job next time, they ask you again. And then when there is a time they're appointing people to committee, they will say, you know what, that person is so responsive and always deliver on time. They put you up for a committee. And that's how it works. And it takes time. You got to be patient. Don't rush it. You will get there. That's
1: great advice. And Tony, is there any of these activities? Obviously, it's hard to compare things to each other, but any special meaning any of it has had to you, or is it that each each had its own flavor?
2: Yeah, there's no question each of them has its own flavor. But um, being editor of the Journal of Vascular Surgery, Mm -hmm. um, that had really a special flavor it had a really a special flavor to a point that at the same time I was offered a chair position and then I was uh I was called and I was told that we're going to be uh the next editors and I want to mention something about editors with plural um so I turned down the chair job and I I, I preferred to be the editor of the journal and what I wanted to say also, when you start on that road, you got to find a partner. Right? And Bruce Perler from Hopkins and I were friends for many, many years. And we clicked. So we did the Journal of Vascular Surgery together as co-editors. I was the editor-in-chief. He was the senior head. And then we did two editions of Rutherford's together, and now we're doing a third edition of Rutherford together. And we complement each other. Bruce is extremely smart, extremely eloquent, and always when you want to succeed in life, find people who are better than you. And Bruce is definitely (laughs) ahead of me. But that that partnership has been there for years. So uh, I believe that's extremely important. So when you want to do something uh, professionally, find the right people that you can do it
1: with. That's great. And thanks for mentioning kind of the, 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 the fact that the journal meant so much to you. And so then about, uh, I want to say about 12 years ago, you became the chair of surgery at George Washington University. That experience. What have you learned from that experience, and and what 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 have been the highlights of the experience as a chair of a department of surgery and academic organization?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, I. It's very interesting. Is in that I thought I would retire from the VA. I was really doing fine. I was that year twenty ten when I left. I was the editor of the journal, and I was serving on the vascular surgery board at the American uh, Board of Surgery. Uh, My life was in perfect balance, Uh, but this opportunity came about. And I'm not gonna go into detail because a lot of good friends and my wife actually pushed me to do it. And um, actually at the time, uh, it was two years after I started my tenure as editor of the journal, so I got comfortable with that. So I decided actually to go for it and I was selected to be uh, the chair. And that was also another very important opportunity that I took advantage of. Um, It somewhat uh, came to me uh, because I was on the faculty at GW being at the VA but I was not in GW proper. Uh, and it was time for me after 24 years in the VA, actually, uh, to build something else. Uh, as you know, in the VA, you build up to a certain level, but then it becomes, it's a budget and all that kind of stuff. So I felt I can build here. And actually, we did a lot of building since then. So this is what I what I learned, okay? Uh, people, when they come and ask me about taking a new job, especially if it's in a place that you don't know much about. Now, I knew stuff about GW because I was on the faculty, I knew the faculty, I knew the department, so it was easier. But people go to a new position of leadership, and they have a lot of ideas. And I believe that the mistake usually by doing things too quickly, too fast, with no consideration to the culture and the dynamics that exist in that place. I do believe that in any leadership position, the most important parts are when you start and when you wind down. In the middle, it becomes a place that you're comfortable with. You don't want to start on the wrong foot. And what happens, what happens is people go, try to make changes very quickly, and they rub people the wrong way. And then things just don't go their way. Now, Now, sometimes you go to a place and then you need to do something because there is really an issue that's that's clear to everyone, and you need to make change in that issue. But I'm I'm not talking about that, right? Mm-hmm. It's so. What I tell people when they ask me that question, I will say, spend the first six months just studying the place, and not just studying, you know, where this thing is and that thing is. Study the people in that place. Who are the people that really doing the work? Who are the people that are trusted? Who are the people that can help you on that journey? Uh, that's number one. Number two, don't issue edict. People don't take that lightly. You got to do it with everyone else, especially with big decision. Talk with a lot of people. Talk with a lot of people and, and talk with them and, and get, Their opinion. It doesn't matter that at the end you're going to do exactly what everyone tells you. It's your decision at the end. But then you'll be able to make a very educated decision. The mistake I believe that some people do is they talk with the people above them. They don't talk with the people below them. But let me tell you, you become successful based on the people who are who, who you are leading, because if they're happy and they're satisfied and they feel that they've been engaged in the decisions, they're going to do a great job and you will take the credit for that because you are the leader of the group. So that, I believe, is extremely important. Now, on the other end of it, I really believe that there is a responsibility on those people as well to reciprocate. And they need to be positive, especially young people. They need to be positive. They need to be loyal to the organization and helping the department and the organization to move forward. And most importantly, stay away from office politics. It just does not take you anywhere. If you have some time that you can. Sometime that you can use, not being in the OR or in the clinic or teaching, taking care of patient. You know what? Sit down and think, where do you want to see yourself five, 10 years down the line? Uh, start doing a study. If you have an abstract, get it done. Don't sit there and spend your time talking about things that really are not going to take you anywhere. So I think it's a mutual relationship. And when a leader comes and starts engaging the faculty, then I believe that stuff will happen. And again, no one, no one, no one on that totem pole is too small, not to engage.
1: That's a, that's a that's a great point. And in, in as you think about your leadership um, journey. What would be a piece of advice that was um, a, just amazing that you're like, yeah, that was the best piece of advice? Or was there a piece of advice that people gave you that was just completely, as you think about it, it was a bad piece of advice?
2: It's, it's very interesting. So the the late uh, Dave Richardson, mm-hmm. uh, I got to, to know him around 2007. And the reason I got to know him is because he, uh, G.W., while they were rec- they are starting to recruit chair, they asked him, Barbara Bass, and myself, to be an external committee to look at the department in terms of recruiting a chair. And at the time. Uh, as I said, I was looking at a different job, and I was being offered the position and stuff like that. And uh, I was talking about that. I think in one of our downtime, we we came here for two days to do the review, a meeting with a lot of people. And I told Dave Richardson, and you know he had written a lot of papers about to be a chair. And I I told him that, and he said, uh, "How old are you?" And I told him and he said, you know what, the average tenure for a chair is seven years. And he said to me, so always time it. I said, okay, well, that's a great advice. About three years later, I see him here at the college in the Washington office. And I say to him, you're not gonna believe Dave, I took the job at GW, the one that we actually went and uh, did the review for, and he said, how old are you? I told him, I said, you're going to be fine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so however, though, I've been here for 13 years. So yes. that seven years didn't work out, uh, <laughs> as, he, as he mentioned to me. So when what I'm trying to say by that is you get to look at so many things when you yes. take a position as a chair, but anyways.
1: Thank you for that. And I just want to uh, make sure that uh, question in the chat box from Dr. Legerfo, Tony, both you and your wife are very busy. Plus you have children and grandchildren. How do you prioritize and
2: maintain a balance of life? Oh my gosh. Frank, did you have to ask me that difficult question? <laughs> and thank you for all the years, Frank. And you know what? Uh, uh, we talk about mentorship and mentors. So let me let me just make this please, point. Please. Um, now, Frank Legerfo is a real mentor. Uh, I went to do my fellowship with him. And then we. Uh, I, I used to get calls from him after I came to Washington. He would say, you know, there's this job happening. This will be a good one for you. Uh, if you're interested in it, let's talk about it. And he was like this throughout my professional career. Um, I, I basically finished my fellowship with him in 1984. So almost 40 years, and we continu- he continued to look after me. And he continues to, even at this stage of my career. So thank you, Frank, for doing that. Uh, I have to say, um, Mary, my wife, um, was the reason I was able to do what I've done. And uh, I say this all the time. As I said, she is a uh, pathologist and she chose also the academic route. She currently serves as the chair of pathology at Georgetown. So we are extremely blessed. And uh, to be in the United States of America, and I'm chair of surgery at George Washington in the nation's capital, she is the chair of surgery, chair of pathology at Georgetown, uh, also in the nation's capital. So, uh, you know, you asked me why you, you went to the VA and volunteered. I mean, that's there that's you good. Go. There you go. Um, and Mary, when uh, we started raising, uh, when we started having children, she actually dedicated herself to that. And she has an unbelievable ability for time management. I mean, unbelievable she can predict anything she is going to do to the second almost and she actually put on hold her academic career and she just was clinically active and took care of children and we had help at home and all that kind of stuff as the children started uh, when like five six years later start going to Uh, kindergarten and others little by little she started ramping up her academic career and resumed her scholarship writing papers and she became she is a cytopathologist in training and she became the president of the two national cytopathology societies so I could tell you that um, if it were not for Mary would have been very very difficult for me to do what I've what I've done all these years and uh, and I'll, and it's very important because she is an academic uh, medicine. She understand what it takes. She understands what it means to go into the meetings. I understand what it takes to sitting at night and writing a paper or uh, working on a book because she did that herself. So uh, this partnership, and I really call it partnership, it's been, I believe, beneficial to both of us. But definitely, it was much more beneficial to me. So, uh, so I just thank you for that question, Frank. Actually, that's allowed me to say something about about Mawa. That's wife. great.
1: That's great. It, it, it's obviously all of this tempts me as I see some of uh, my former colleagues from Georgetown on the on the and the attendees. Is obviously the question is when you were at the VA, who were the better residents to
0: Georgetown? <laughs> no, I'm
1: not gonna ask that.
2: <laughs> well, I'm not gonna answer it if you ask it. <laughs> no, actually, let me let me say this. Um I was asked once uh uh in a, a different kind of setup about uh that I was faculty member of both Georgetown and GW when I was at the VA. And they asked me whether there's any Connection. I said, no, Georgetown GW two independent organizations. However, though, we are in the city of Washington on the faculty level, we actually interact quite a bit and we're friends and we know each other. But I also said on the resident level, because they both rotate at GW at, at the VA, there became some kind of friendship. And actually, uh, we do have residents from GW and Georgetown that get married to each other. So that yes. was a huge success of that relationship. But uh, both, I, I believe that really both residents have done a superb job when I was at the VA. And even now, I would say that both residents, even I'm chair at GW, I would still say that uh, both residents, GW and Georgetown are, are excellent. And mm-hmm. Excellent. And, and, and thank you for being on this, being from Georgetown, being on this.
1: Uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> so I want to make sure that I ask a couple of questions from the audience. Um, Dr. Wright asks, Tony, thank you for your insights and leadership. Um, uh, have you ke- kept operating throughout your chairmanship? How did you manage that time? And thanks for always caring for the, our U.S. veteran veterans. Well, it's,
2: uh, thank you so, so much for that question. And I um, uh, I, I, obviously, I did continue to operate um, uh, actively, but then um, a few years ago, I assumed another position in my organization. Um, uh, I became uh, the president and chair of the board of our physician group, and I have to say doing that and the department put a huge dent on my clinical activity. Um I, I have done that. Uh, I'm not the president and chair of the board anymore, but then I transitioned for additional few years to be uh, uh, the chief physician executive of our physician group, okay, which I ended that tenure uh, earlier um, in the mid of 2023. 20, uh, I focus, uh, I still um, uh, active in. Uh, talking about cases, discussing cases, the vascular conference, working with the junior faculty members. Uh, But I dedicate most of my time now for faculty development and taking care of the department. Uh, We added a lot of, uh, we added transplant, we added level one trauma, we added revamped vascular surgery. I mean, there's a lot of things that I did in the department and expanded that department to a point that, it became like three times the size or two and a half to three times the size So when I took it over. Uh, so that's basically how I spend my time now um, towards the end, you know. I'm not saying I'm ending my career anytime soon, but you know how yes. it is. It's a transition. Excellent. Um, I, I don't want to, I want to make sure before time
1: is up that we talk about your, um, work with the American College of Surgeons and Board of Regents, and you, you, you were the President of the Board of Regents in, I believe, 2021. Um, tell us a little bit about that experience and what that has meant to you and, and uh, some of the work that you did with the strategic um, analysis and so on.
2: You know, uh, being elected to the Board of Regents, despite the fact I was president Society for Vascular Surgery, but those are my colleagues. That's my specialty, right? Uh, I have worked in the college since I was uh, in the chapter, present the chapter. I merged the Washington Academy of Surgery and the chapter together. Uh, I've done all that work. I served on the board of governors. I chaired committees on the board of governors. But when I was elected to the board of region, that had a completely different flavor. And the reason being is because of multiple reasons, actually. But the main reason is I'm now moved out of the vascular surgery shell Mm -hmm. and expanded my horizon. And what an expansion it has been because... I got to know people outside my specialty that I would have never met and never become friends with. And actually, I treasure that the most. In addition to that, I don't believe people realize how dedicated and how much time and effort member the 23 24 members including the president of the board of regions put into it and how loyal and how they think about the practice of surgery for all surgeons and the amount of time that we work on that and we talk about it it is it is really amazing i never appreciated that before becoming Uh, uh, before becoming a regent. And I enjoyed that time. We worked hard, no question about it. And we work hard, but it's so extremely enjoyable because you have these 23, 24 people of like mind and we all towards one goal. And the goal is to make the practice of surgery better for the patient and for our members. And that's the goal, to serve everyone with skill and trust. And that's exactly the motto that the board has all the time. Now, all are active on the board. So we belong to committees and then we chair committees and stuff like that. Now, I was really humbled by being elected by my fellow regent as the chair of the board two years ago. Mm-hmm. And when I was told that I was nominated, we you would, we want you to write a personal statement. I actually, instead of writing about myself, I actually wrote about what I would do. Okay. And what I noticed in the previous like six years I was on the board that we haven't engaged. We hadn't engaged in uh, strategic uh, planning. And I said to myself if I have the opportunity, this is something I would do. So actually, uh, in my personal statement, um, I wrote that I would like uh, to do not strategic uh, 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 planning, but strategic analysis of the divisions that report to the border regions, okay? At the same time, at the same time, uh, Dr. Turner, who was selected to be the executive director, and then obviously we added uh, the term CEO to it. Um, And we started, I started my uh, year as chair of the board, and she started as the executive director exactly on the same day. So we formed this uh, relationship and friendship. And she Liked uh, the idea of um, uh, doing the strategic analysis. And uh, she actually was extremely helpful to me in doing it. And we did first quality, and then we did education, and then we did trauma, and then we did, and we didn't finish doing all of them during my tenure. But I was so glad that after I stepped down from being the chair, it continued. And I and, and the premise for that uh, strategic planning is that a committee that that work in that division, you close your eyes and you think where surgery is going three to five years from now. And then you plan and see how you're gonna move with that division to be ahead of the curve rather than behind the curve. And came up with recommendations. So each division came up with between five to seven recommendation. And these recommendation now formed the uh, NIDAS to actually continue with the work in the division. And uh, I I believe, obviously it's not for me to say, but I believe that that was a useful process. I was happy that I was able to do it because this this was something I really wanted to do. That's great. That's great. And in addition to that, I'm sorry, in addition no, to please. that, in addition to that, um, I uh, I really, one of the things that vascular surgery was struggling with, with is how to optimize quality. So when I became a regent, obviously, I started appreciating the work that the college does in quality. It's really massive. Mm-hmm. So for many, many years before, myself and a group of vascular surgeons wanted to put actually a, what we called at the time, a certification program for vascular centers. So as chair of the board, uh, as, as as a regent, I approached at the time, the college, I approached the society for vascular surgery and said, we have all these issues in vascular surgery, what's happening on the inpatient and outpatient we are use the experience at the college to put together a vascular verification program and we did we started just before covid covid delayed things but we continued to work and now in march of 2023 we launched the inpatient program and in september of 2023 we launched the outpatient program and we already uh, reviewed uh, eight sites and actually, it's I believe that that's going to be huge for the specialty of vascular surgery. Without the college, we spent over 15, 20 years, and we couldn't come up with one because it's very difficult. But the college has the infrastructure that allowed us to do it.
1: Great, great. And I want to ask you a little bit also about your experience with the Academy of Master Surgeon oh, Educators. Oh. You've been you've been on the steering committee and. And, and, and what that has meant uh, for you and what you see as the future?
2: I, I, I believe um, the concept of the academy is a fabulous concept. And th- it, this is a concept that would appreciate people on different level in education, education of other surgeons. And um, I, I, I think, uh, this this was attributed to uh zollinger but surgeons who not, do not educate the next generation are committing mad practice and the academy is an organization that appreciate education of surgeon at all level and so i became one of the inaugural members and uh, uh, and actually the academy was great, especially during COVID. Academy was just formed in early 2020 COVID started. So Dr. Britt and Dr. Sachdiva brought together a group of surgeons and then divided them into three subcommittees. And those surgeons just got into to work on how to continue the education of trainees during COVID and set the stage of what to come in the academy. I was was not on the steering committee when the academy was formed, but I was uh, asked to join after that. And what a group of people on the steering committee, also extremely dedicated. They think only about how to make surgical education in the United States better. And I I have to say, uh, I'm very proud to be uh, a academy member, and especially cr- proud to be uh, a member of the steering committee. It's it's a great thing, really, that the college has done. Excellent.
1: Excellent. I want to finish with a question from Dr. Joshi um, that I may just tw- change your question just a little bit. It says, when you become a leader or chief, you sometimes feel that you need to get 100% operative income, no complications which is practically impossible. How do you overcome that? And I want to put it in context of your thoughts about resilience and your thoughts about um, uh, adversity. Uh, and, and, yeah. and I think it goes to this also within our surgical practice.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, thank you. Thank you for that question. Uh, it, it, took me actually, it took me actually a few years uh, to get where I felt I needed to be. Uh, I think surgeons in nature are perfectionists. I believe this is why I really loved surgery, because you're always seeking perfection. You're not going to reach it. We're never going to reach it. I don't believe anyone can reach perfection when you're dealing with the pathophysiology of another human being. But at least we are always trying to get there initially when you become a surgeon you get you worry about everything i think that's good i think a surgeon that does not worry about their results and their operations i don't think that those surgeons are uh doing a uh, uh, doing it right let me put it this way all right so it is always extremely important uh, to do so. In the beginning, you worry about everything and you gotta train yourself to be able to go beyond the obstacles. Mm-hmm. And to do so, you gotta put a goal for yourself and you always march towards your that goal and you convince yourself that everything that's happened is a sideshow. You take care of it, when it happens, it's gonna go away, but you're gonna keep on marching toward that goal. And I think when you do that, you get to a point where you are able to go through obstacles to get where you need to be. Thank you so
1: much, Tony. I really appreciate um, all the wisdom. I appreciate you sharing uh, so much of yourself with us tonight. Thank you so much. This has been an absolute
2: pleasure. Thank Dr. you. Santilla. Thank you, Mom, for an Excellent. interview. Thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast. Brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag HouseOfSurgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.